This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time, if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. Constant Contact helps small businesses stand tall with powerful digital marketing solutions. And now with advanced automation and AI tools in one place, we've got your marketing covered so you can focus more on running your business. With our AI content generator, you'll always have the right words to say. And with pre-built automated email and text messages, you'll say the right thing at the right time, every time. Constant Contact delivers the tools you need to keep up, excel, and grow. Try it free at ConstantContact.com. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Oh, hello, friends. Wow. Okay. Buckle up. Welcome back to the New Evangelicals podcast. I just talked to, um, wow, uh, a, a legend. I mean, there's no way around it. Maybe not a legend in our evangelical spaces. He might be called a heretic, but uh, man, in the broader Christian community, uh, especially in America and, and, and elsewhere, a complete biblical New Testament scholar legend. I just talked to John Dominic Crossan and buckle up, friends. This is a very different way of thinking about being a Christian, especially for you folks who grew up like me in fundamentalist spaces. John, or I'm sorry, Dom, he refers to be called Dom. Dom is someone who would not necessarily affirm a literal physical resurrection, but still identifies as a devote, uh, devote. A devout, that's the word I'm looking for, a devout Christian. How does that work? Because you know, people in our spaces, especially the more fundamentalist ones, hey, if you don't affirm a physical resurrection, you're just not a Christian. You're just out. Well, Dom begs to differ. Um, and as we talked, I'll, I'll tell you what, this is a very dense episode, meaning you have to listen closely. Dom is a heavyweight of theology and scholarship and history. He knows what he's talking about. And even with folks who would not agree with him, he is well-respected in these spaces. So 
Yeah, just buckle up because he's doing a class with Trip Fuller for Easter about the resurrection and what Easter means as Christians. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to those recordings. They're going to come out uh, pretty closely to when this recording comes out, so you have access to that. But yeah, friends, like I said, this is this is um, so much for me to think about, and I hope you find. Um, I hope that that I hope that you find this interview as as thought provoking as I did. So, hey, again, thanks for being here. Thanks for being part of the community. If you like our work, you can share the podcast or like or subscribe, whatever you do. We are a nonprofit uh, community holding space for thousands of people navigating uh, better ways forward in the Christian tradition. If you want to support our work, you can donate. Uh, link is in our show notes. We, like I said, we are a nonprofit, which means any donation given to us in the U.S. is tax deductible and goes to helping people find better paths forward in the Christian tradition. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with John Dominic Cross, and I hope you enjoy it. Great. Well, I, I got to be honest. I'm 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 half excited. I'm a little intimidated, uh, but I am honored to have John Dominic Crossan with us. Dom, thank you so much for being here and making time. It really means the world. Tim, it's a pleasure, a great pleasure to be with you, and I'm not intimidating at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they all say, all right? And then we start talking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I do want to start here. You know, you did mention your full name has John as your first name, but you go by Dom. Why is that? What is the story behind that? It's, it's worth telling, Tim, because uh, at the age of, uh, what, I was 16 and 19, what was it? In 1950, I decided to join a Roman Catholic monastery, become a monk, because quite frankly, I thought that God had the most exciting game in town. I was living in the wilds of Donegal and life was kind of boring. But my name was John Crossan. Actually, it was Gaelic, it was Sean O'Crossan, but it was John Crossan. That's what's on my uh, passport, license, TSA, all that stuff. Yeah. But when I went into the monastery, like when you go, like in the Bible, when you get a new vocation to wipe out your past, and give you a new name and a new future. So I became Brother Dominic and Father Dominic. And 19 years later, I decided that, you know, celibacy was greatly overrated. And I decided to leave the monastery. But, but, but as a statement, with that exception of celibacy, I was taking everything else with me because the monastery had made me. Mm. So I stuck Dominic in the middle. It has no legal standing. So the way I put it is, is, uh, you know, <laughs> God knows me as Dominic and the state knows me as John. And sometimes they're not talking to one another. So I have no confusion. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love Dominic and I, I've kept it. That's the only reason. Wow. Well, that, that's very interesting. You know, I was looking up just some of your background and credentials and just your, your own story, you know, briefly before we started recording. And I got to say, Dom, you have one hell of a story. Uh, it, it is, it is something. I know that, I know that, that, that there's a lot here, but in maybe a, a somewhat condensed form, can you kind of give us some of your journey? You said that at one point you were part of the Catholic Church. Now you really, I think you're outside of that. What, what does your faith journey look like for you kind of going from point A to where you are now? Okay, real fast. Um, we were living in, in the far north of Donegal, as far north as you can get. I went to a, a, a classical boarding school. I had five years of Greek and five years of Latin. Please don't be impressed. That's what everyone else was getting. It wasn't an elite school, but it was left over by receding British imperialism. So I had a magnificent education, as good mm -hmm. as I would have gotten the elite schools of England. Yeah. So 
and that set my life because I went into the monasteries, I said, with a vow of obedience to do what I was told. I was expecting to go to Africa as a missionary. And they said, wait a minute, five years of Greek, five years of Latin, you're going to become a professor. Okay, sure, whatever. So that's what they made me, be a professor. Then at a certain point, I had to make a distinction because I couldn't be an honest scholar. Others can do this. I couldn't be an honest scholar, tell you what I found, and be an obedient priest. And I had a vow of obedience. So something had to give. And I had to disentangle that because I went in to the monastery to be a priest, not to be a scholar, but they made me a scholar. And I and then I found I wanted to be a scholar. So I had to separate the two and went into the university. But I, I mean, I subtracted myself, let me be honest, from Roman Catholic authority. I do not, as a scholar, accept the authority of the Roman Catholic Church to tell me what I have found and not found. Not because I think I'm right. Really not, Tim. It's not at all because I think I'm right. But your integrity as a scholar mm -hmm. is be to say what you found. You're in research and publication. You're not in publicity and public relations. That's a different operation. It's not dishonest. But if you're in <laughs> research, you have to say what you found. So in 1968, I had a major dispute with the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago. And when the dust settled, he was still the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, but I was an ex-priest and an ex-monk <laughs> and went off very happily and stayed very happily at DePaul University for my whole career for 26 years. So I don't think of myself outside the Catholic community or tradition, but yeah, I think honestly, I'm outside the Catholic authority and honestly don't want to have anything to do with it because I would spend my life fighting it, and I'm not interested in fighting it. I'm interested in saying what I find out about Jesus and about the New Testament and the Bible. So I, I don't want to spend my life in opposing them and let them dictate, <laughs> kind of put me into a negative position. I want to be positive. So as far as I'm concerned, my sensibility, I think, is profoundly Catholic. That's why I'm very much... Um, oriented towards the visual rather than the, well, as well as the verbal, equally, to be honest with you. So my own faith journey says I have to keep Roman Catholic authority at a safe distance, not to be trapped in negativity. Yeah. But I recognize my sensibility is totally formed from monastic life, visual life. So it's a kind of a... <laughs> Uh, a, bit, a bit of an exile, I think. Well, that's interesting. You, you mentioned um, a minute ago about your, I, and forgive me if the wording isn't is a hundred percent, but something to the effect that you're still part of, you would see yourself as part of the Catholic community, but under, but not under the authority of like the Roman Catholic Church. Can you explain more of that? Because to me, they kind of, I mean, I'm under the impression, I know so little, I did not grow up Catholic, but you know, essentially if, if the Catholic Church says you're out, you're kind of excommunicated, but you still kind of seem to hint that, that, that you still find room there in the community side. What does that mean? Well, first of all, I, strictly speaking, when I decided to leave the monastery, I had taken vows, and you take them to God, of course, but through the church. So I sent a request, a formal request to Rome to be dispensed from my vows. Now, I'll be honest with you, if they said no, I'd have said, well, I'm leaving in any case. But I mean, the courtesy was to do that. Sure. So six months later, I got a rescript from Rome. The joke among my colleagues was that the rescript had been waiting for years, hoping I'd ask for it. <laughs> but I got a rescript dispensing me from my vows. Mm. So I walked out of the Roman Catholic authority, 
by the book, as it were. Yeah. But you're quite right. I think there, the issue that really broke it was in um, August of 68, when the papal encyclical Humana Vitae came out, saying that it was a mortal sin for Roman Catholics to use any form of birth control except rhythm or celibacy. Mm. I was invited to go on television, PBS in Chicago, with a doctor, I mean, an MD doctor, who claimed that rhythm always worked. I knew it didn't. My sister had six kids. I, I, knew, <laughs> I knew a fair amount about how those things work. Yeah. And I simply said that the Pope was wrong on this. I, I, I kind of I was nice. I said that, you know, Nixon was our president, but he's wrong in Vietnam, and the Pope is our, is our Pope, but he's wrong on the birth control. I, <laughs> Not controversial I, I, at all, Dom. Not I at thought, all. You know, it was sweetly, you know, if you're going to annoy people, annoy everyone equally. Yeah, right. If you're going to offend, just go big or go home. <laughs> but, you know, two days later or so, my religious superior, this is very interesting, my religious superior got a letter from the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, show cause, within a week, by crossing isn't out of the diocese. And my superior, because, you know, religious orders protect their own. They really do. Said four pages of letter to give me a carbon copy of it to the Archbishop of Chicago saying stuff like, well, you know, in the Bible, if you have a problem with a fellow Christian, you're supposed to talk to them directly. I mean, he could have been out there faster than I would be on his ear. And then nothing happened because what was happening across the world was everyone was, most Catholic theologians were against it. Yeah. All yeah. of a sudden, crossing was just a minor little detail. <laughs> on a great big swarm, and nothing else was said. Yeah. Nothing else was said. The, the Cardinal Archbishop never came back. So I decided, okay, okay, that was that was a bit too close. It's time to leave. I, yeah. So I that's what I did. I left by the book, as I said. I went to DePaul University, which is major Roman Catholic university, the biggest in the country. But it has very strong nerves. Yeah. It really does. You know, I was a bit controversial. I could have said, well, yeah, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> well, I mean, do you, do you still, and I'm not sure if this is the right language to use, but do you still find yourself somewhere then like in the Christian tradition? Do you identify as Catholic still, or is there something that, 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 that you find in that you're like, Hey, I, I like being here still somewhere in the Christian faith. Oh, let me, let me distinguish absolutely to the first part, a Christian. Yeah. No matter what any other Christian ever says about me, I am absolutely Christian. Mm. That's why I disappoint a lot of atheists you know, who found out I was saying this or that isn't historical, and they thought I was saying something else. Yeah, yeah. No, I am a Christian. I am also an historian, and I'm absolutely capable of doing honest historical work and saying, this is what I think, this is what I find, and then saying, and by the way, I think he's right. Hmm. I, I think I can honestly tell you, here's what I think Jesus was up to. Hmm. Here's what made him tick. Here's yeah. what got him killed. And by the way, now I'm moving from being a historian to being a Christian. I think he had a vision for the world that was absolutely important then and now. And I'll explain it to you. And in fact, I, I explain it to you if you want in non-Christian language. Hmm. So I, I find that I can... I think of, you know, if you were, if you were a journalist and let's say you're a staunch Democrat and your job was to go on the Republican, uh, presidential, <laughs> you know, could you or could you not 
say an honest statement. I think this is what the Republican candidate says. I think I agree with this. I disagree with that. Uh, and I'm a, if you can't, then get out of it. You can't right. do your job. Right. So I think as a historian, and I'm, you have to be a theologian to be a good biblical historian because they're talking theology. Right, right. If you don't like theology, stay away from the Bible. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, if you just like history and sociology, yeah. then talk about somebody else. Talk. You can talk about Julius Caesar or, you know, without getting into much theology. You can't do Augustus. So I find myself a little bit in an in-between situation, yeah. as many, many Roman Catholics are today. They devoutly <laughs> disagree with the Pope on anything that has to do with sex, especially, <laughs> especially sex. Yeah. Honest. Well, um, okay. I, I want to preface to you, Dom, just so who you, who you, I want you to know who you're talking to on this podcast, like as far as the audience goes. Okay. Many of us grew up in a very fundamentalist expression of the evangelical tradition in America. So uh, biblical inerrancy, uh, for example, is a big thing. Uh, eternal conscious torment is a very big deal here. Um, you know, um, for, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, that's where a lot of us have come from, both in more reformed traditions and in charismatic traditions. And a lot of us are, maybe for the first time, uh, what I say are kind of walking out of that basement and into the house of Christian thought and going, holy smokes, there's a lot more going on here than I was ever taught about. I really did not know about all these other ways of viewing the Christian tradition and other rooms that 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 live there. And so as you know the reason why we exist is because when Trump happened and COVID responses happened, we found that our evangelical culture was just frankly on the wrong side. We, we were challenging in a way our own popes, you know, which, which would have yeah. been our evangelical leaders and pastors and saying, I don't know. I mean, guys, wearing a mask is not, is not tyrannical. It's just love of neighbor. And, you know, this Trump thing is problematic. So a lot of us are still very new, though, to kind of thinking about Christianity in different ways. And I'm really glad to have you because you're someone that I know um, is is really well known for your work, even if some of it might be in Christian space is a little controversial. And I think that's important because it's important for us to, to realize that, you know, the, again, the, 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 the tradition is bigger than, than what we, we've inherited and that we have an obligation to explore these spaces and hear from other experts and scholars and theologians about their work and how they're able to still stay Christian, even when maybe some of their data suggests things that to us, how we were taught, would automatically put you outside the Christian right. faith, right? Yeah. Does that make and sense? That makes me very sympathetic to this because in one sense, I had to make that distinction. Yeah. And I, as I told you, I loved it made me a professor, and I loved being a professor, or at least being a student, let's yeah. say. And now all of a sudden, how do I disentangle being a priest from being a professor? Let me put it that way. But I'm not talking right. about careers. I'm really not talking about careers. Yeah, I, I'm with you all the way. So, so we're we're going to release this closer to Easter. I know that that that, that you're doing some work with Trip Four, someone who I really respect and love, and someone that I've become friends with through this work. And and we're we're talking about for our conversation now that we've all kind of prefaced it, the challenge of of Jesus. And and this is a very interesting conversation because you know for me, I've I was taught early on that ultimately Jesus was the person who God punished, so that way I don't burn in hell forever. 
Okay. Uh, and then I, I was introduced to another uh, author named Shane Claiborne, who wrote the book Irresistible uh, Irresistible Revolution, which kind of made more of like the social aspect of, of of the work of the gospel and how we should be a little more broader in, in our approach than just individual salvation from hell. And and so now a lot of us are like, okay, well, how about like the more facts of of like you know we 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 read these gospel accounts, Jesus turns water into wine. Um, <laughs> You know, did this stuff really happen? And if it didn't, is our faith completely destroyed? Because I was taught that if you don't hold to a very literalistic interpretation of even like the resurrection, which, you know, full transparency, I still would, I still would affirm a physical resurrection. Although I tell people now, listen, I can't give you the camcorder footage for it. I just can't do it. You know, so I'm, 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 I'm comfortable in that mystery. But, you know, if that didn't happen, then Paul says later on that our faith is pretty much useless. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm looking forward to kind of hearing for you as, 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 someone who really studies this stuff and is is so well respected in this in, in this space for you approaching Jesus what what are some what were some of the challenges that you found and where have you landed on some of these things for you all right let me begin off Jesus for a moment for me metaphor creates reality now it doesn't create cosmic reality evolution is doing a good job on that long before we arrived on the scene and continues but human world the worlds we live in are created by lived out metaphors by a metaphor i mean seeing as for example in 1930s one country saw the future and called it the new deal another country saw the future as a thousand years right and started to live accordingly now Mm. each of them created reality One of those realities seemed to work pretty well. The other, I think we might agree, didn't work very well. Mm. Now, somebody might say that's due to God. I would say it's due to evolution because there are certain things that will not work with evolution because evolution builds from the bottom up. So I don't think things that build only from the top down will ever work. Honestly, mm. you're fighting evolution. You're fighting something else. So mm. I, I sort of, take terribly seriously, far more serious than somebody would say, well, you you mean it's just a metaphor? I mean, the virginal conception of Jesus is just a metaphor? I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, but when you say something is a metaphor, you must tell me what it means. If I tell you somebody, or if if I said to your face, you're a chicken, that's a metaphor. How come I get a punch in the nose for it? How how come we created a reality of a fight? If I say to you, you're an eagle, you're a vulture, you're a peacock, all of those are metaphors, but none of them is about feathers. Hmm. So when I say something is a metaphor, then if that's lived out, that's going to create reality. So in the name of God, please be careful about your metaphors. So, for example, when I turn, if you want, to the the resurrection, that's that's in the back of my mind. Now, let me start with two facts. Well, I'll give you a bit of background. In the last, uh, since 2000 until 2014, the Marcus Borg, Miriam Borg, Sarah, and myself led 40 people around eastern, western Turkey. Uh, we didn't get quite as far as where Gaziantep, where the, the horrors are going on at the moment, but in western Turkey, in the footsteps of Paul. And in the process, we saw an awful lot of Byzantine iconography. Okay, that's the general background. Here's the first fact. The 
basically most of the major events in the life of Jesus are described in the gospel, like the transfiguration, the baptism, uh, you know, entry into Jerusalem. So if you're an artist, there's no problem, uh, you know, with your skills and everything, looking at the story and right and depicting it. Now, the most important one of them all, here's my first fact, it's not an interpretation. The most important event in the entire life of Jesus is the resurrection. But that's only described in its effects, in its consequences, in its results, either as an empty tomb or visionary appearances. That's the only way it's described. It's not described as the moment itself, as what, for example, those lying guards actually saw before they said, oh, we were asleep and they stole the body and lied. What did they see? What was the actual moment itself? Hmm. That's never described in the New Testament. And that's extraordinary. Hmm. But because of that vacuum, I'm going to use the term vacuum, there are two absolutely profoundly different traditions in Western Christianity, the one you and I know real well, <laughs> yeah. probably maybe take for granted as being it, yes. and in Eastern Christianity. And this was kind of a revelation. Now, it wasn't that I knew it in theory. It was that as we went around, you know, in, in the footsteps of Paul, I went to all sorts of other places as well, like the cave churches of Cappadocia. We kept seeing all these scenes of the life of Jesus. You know, you're, you're inside the life of Jesus. It's all around you. And every one of them, you know, you understand the crucifixion looks like the crucifixion. They all look the same until you get to the resurrection. And then you see Jesus. Clearly Jesus, and usually carrying a symbolic cross, not a great big wooden one, <laughs> but a ritual cross, probably with the wounds showing. And he's down in Hades, not hell. Hades, the place of death. And he's taking Adam and Eve out by their limp wrists, kind of, you know, they'd be dead a long time, so they're just waking up. What on earth does it mean, mean? Whether you believe it or not, what does it mean to say that Jesus, the crucified one, took the human race? That's what Adam and Eve mean. Right. If there's only two, it's going to be Adam and Eve. There may be others, but Adam and Eve for sure. Out of Hades, out of death into life. He's pulling them into, he's surrounded by what's called the mandorla, which is a heavenly hour, and he's pulling them into it. Now, here's my problem. I can imagine really imagine, literally, Jesus coming out of the tomb. I can imagine it. I can imagine when the scholar says, could have camera have taken a picture of him? I can imagine it, whatever I think about it. I don't think you could, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> I can't even imagine literally taking the Eastern vision. How do you think Adam, excuse me, Jesus takes the arm the limp wrist of Adam and Eve, and wrenches them, as it were, from death into life. What mm. does that mean? Mm. I'm not asking, do you believe it or not? I'm asking, like, when you see the two arches, two yellow arches, you know what it means. Now, you might not like hamburgers, but you certainly know. <laughs> you certainly oh, know I do know what it means, Dom, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it means. So, I mean, it's not enough to say that's a metaphor. Mm. It's not enough to say that's a metaphor. You've only begun. In fact, if you say it's literal, then you have to say, well, so what? Good for Jesus or, you know, that's nice for Jesus. Why should I care? 
then you have to at least build interpretation. So after 20 years of, of traveling around the, the Middle East and seeing this everywhere, yeah, probably, you know, Sarah and I wrote a book about it to try and show the difference between those two theologies and iconographies and insisting that they're both there and then asking the question, if you showed both of those images to Paul, now I mean, I mean to Paul in the first century, which would he have seen as the more valid interpretation of, I don't want to use the word resurrection, of the exaltation of Jesus? Hmm. Would it be the Western one, which is more like an ascension? Or is it what he calls a resurrection and he's a Pharisee, so he knows what resurrection is? Uh, I would find the East is more in continuity with the biblical tradition than the Western. And that raises, you know, a huge issue of understanding and everything else for me. Mm. But I think both of those now are metaphors. But I'm asking, which are you going to live out? Mm. How does the human race get out of death into life? And here's when I slide very carefully from a Christian reading of that to a public square reading of that mm. and say, okay, our species, Homo sapiens, no matter what you think of Christianity, has been on a collision course with, <laughs> with annihilation ever since we got here. Mm. We have turned against the world the environment, we've turned against other species, we have turned against ourselves, and that's the one the, the Bible um, insists on. It talks about turning the spears, you know, turning the swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, as we well know. But the Bible never dreamt of is the horror we're seeing now, mm -hmm. that the enemy might be the plow and the pruning hook, that mm -hmm. we may have agriculturated ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking, what vision do I get from Jesus if I look at him from the point of view, not just of Christianity, which I'm quite ready to do, that's why I am a Christian, but from the point of view of evolution. Does he speak to evolution or does he only speak to Christians within our own sanctuaries? Perfectly valid, by the way. <laughs> does he have a message for the world? And after all, he claimed he did. So if he doesn't have a message for the world, then I should say honestly, he only has a message for Christians. He has nothing to say in the public square. You'll meet him in the sanctuary of your church. Okay, so let me tell you what, I, what I've been taught the message of Jesus is to the world, and then you can give me your thoughts and then kind of what, 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 what you see that message might be based okay, on your own research. I was taught that, oh, well, of course, I mean, Dom, the message that Jesus has to the world is that they are full of sin and on the way to, to hell forever. And all they have to do is put their faith in Jesus and receive the free gift of grace and salvation, and they will not burn in hell forever. You know, and then God, some evangelical spaces might even, might even go farther and say, and then, and then Jesus enters into your heart through the Holy Spirit. And then he changes who you are as a person, which is usually expressed in ways of like, okay, you don't curse anymore, or you don't swear, or if you're gay, maybe now you're straight magically, you know, like something magical, magical just happens. So, so I was always taught that, hey, there, there is a message for the world. 
Um, and that we as these Christians must evangelize to everyone else about this, this, this objective truth, this reality of, of all being that is Christ expressed in this way. So go ahead and evangelize your friends by bringing them to our big fancy altar calls. That's what I was taught the message is. What do you say in response to that? No, I understand that. And basically, if I have not the slightest desire to argue anyone out of it, if they're perfectly happy with that, honestly, if they're perfectly happy with that, do not read me. Do not listen to me. I'm not speaking to you. Turn the podcast off. This is your last warning. <laughs> right. right. Spoiler alert. No, I really am. It. I, I, I was deadly serious when I said I want to probe this positively and not argue it negatively. But let me say, first of all, apart from any argument of how well you're doing with that, I think it is really, really bad theology. Hmm. I mean, it's a contradiction in terms. If if my sins are forgiven, then I can do whatever I want. And if you tell me that's presumption, that's just another sin to be forgiven. It's really bad theology. Hmm. And it doesn't work out. Every time I see somebody after a horrible earthquake or something saying, what did I do to deserve this? Yeah, you, it, it's it's really evil theology. Hmm. Or telling, oh, I was really blessed because the house next door was ruined, but my house wasn't touched. Right. I wince, I wince theologically. I wince, my soul hurts hmm. to listen to that because what it does to people and what it does to any imagination of God, a God who plays games like that, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I understand, I understand, <laughs> fear of a tyrant. I understand the times when maybe you keep your mouth shut and your head down, but that's tyranny. <laughs> yeah, I recognize it in human form or in divine form. Hmm. So I think it's really, really bad theology, profoundly bad theology. I think, on the other hand, that Jesus lived a life of nonviolent resistance, not just to Roman imperialism, but to our civilization itself. When the Bible talks about this world, it's not just talking about the Babylonians, the the, the, the Assyrians, the you know, one after another, one other dreary empire that comes down the chain and puts its <laughs> puts its neck on these people, puts its boot in these people's neck. The criticism is about our civilization. Hmm. It's really, it's really an evolutionary criticism. Hmm. We are a very let me put it this way. Our problem is not original sin, it's original state. We are a social people with individual wills. Mm. Now, social societies shouldn't have individual wills. That, that wouldn't work for the bees or the termites. <laughs> they wouldn't, they wouldn't be producing honey, they'd be having riots. <laughs> right. we're, we're caught between individualism, and I don't want to say communism because I don't mean that, I mean, but communalism or universalism yeah, yeah. We're in between it and you know if you think for example of i'm an individual nobody tells me to wear a mask that's exactly when we pull to one side now we pull to the other side and you know you overdo that maybe you know everyone wears a mask all the time and doesn't leave their house or something absurd right. so we're our species that's why i am going back to that our species is Either, if I speak benignly, an evolutionary challenge. If I speak malignly, it's a cruel joke. Mm. Can we survive in this 
on this almost like tiny little area where we have to be both individual, which is our glory and our, and our trouble and communal. That's the challenge I see. So I see an evolutionary challenge peeking at me all the time in the Bible. I cannot mm. see it. Mm. I, I don't know how not to see it any longer. And I don't know whether I saw it from the Bible. I think I did, actually, fr from seeing the Bible trying to handle the world and talking about this world. So that the problem with Jesus or Paul, anyone else, is not just the Romans or even empires. Mm. They're, they're simply the normal manifestation of civilization. Mm. So we're asked to imagine something which is really like, I don't know any term for it except kind of post-civilization, hmm. to try and imagine what does a world look like which is not violently opposed to the environment, as I said, to other species and to ourselves. And I can hardly imagine that. Yeah. And I, my, my, my way of seeing it at the moment is that the world is the Titanic, mm. but we are the iceberg. It's mm. not that we're on it and someone else is going to hit us. Hit mm. us. We're kind of the iceberg. So I want to see what message do I get from the Bible about that, or else I'm not interested in the Bible, I'm interested in something else. And I find I get the same message from the Bible that I get from evolution about our species. So now when I look at Jesus, yeah, I think Jesus lives for nonviolent resistance to violence because the only other way you stop violence is by superior violence and that doesn't seem to be working for us hmm. because it always escalates and i understand that there may be times that we will do it but but as a species so if you want to say does jesus save us from our sin yeah but not from a little evil thought every now and then no no it saves us from the big sin hmm. the destruction of our environment or the human race when 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 Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, I mean, this is all over the place, you know, and yeah. and uh, you know, and through the lens of Christian nationalism means some things, and uh, through my own lens was taught something else. What 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 do you see that that language uh, to to be? I'm assuming a metaphor for something, right? I, mean, I don't believe in a physical, you know, city in the sky coming down, but there's just this talk of this, I guess, new reality. Maybe. What are your thoughts on 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 what Jesus is really hinting at when he talks about the kingdom? over and over again yeah and it's it's not even a hint i mean i i do respect that Pilate got it right from Pilate's own point of view this guy's subversive mm. now if Pilate had crucified all the apostles up there 11 or 12 however you're counting them after judas then that would be wrong that's what you do at a bandit group that's mm. what you do with violent revolutionary and roman law you crucify the whole bunch of them in a row so everyone gets the point when you're dealing with subversives by Roman law, the way you handle subversives, people we would call activists. Okay. Yeah. You know, they're not just talking. You don't crucify philosophers. <laughs> you know, they can criticize and say we could all be out there just drinking water and you know working working with our hands. And they're never going to crucify a cynic philosopher, even right. though he's he's laughing at them any more than Alexander would have beat up Diogenes for living in the tub. You don't beat up <laughs> but activists, yeah, people who do something. Roman world is to create tumult among the people. Hmm. So Jesus was crucified, if we only knew that, by Pontius Pilate. He was not 
crucified along with his companions. Therefore, Pilate decided he was subversive to Roman law and order, and what he was doing was advocating nonviolent resistance. But resistance, not nonviolence. Mm. Rome loved nonviolence, nonviolent resistance. Okay, I look at that. I think that is like an early distant warning to our species. Mm. Now, maybe there's other people that were saying the same things. In fact, you could watch the prophets for 500 years before Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I can't imagine Jesus kind of coming out of the sky, as it were, with this brand new, as if nobody ever thought about this before. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, if, what the whole, uh, when I read the whole law, <laughs> The Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, the Sabbath jubilee, it's all trying to establish the kingdom of God on earth by whatever name. If you don't want to use the word kingdom, but they're asking, what would this, what would this be really like? If I could put this in American language, what would this be really like if God made up the federal budget? Mm. You know, that's what kingdom of God means. But now if you're saying, and, and we don't like the federal budget because God would not have given so much to this or that. Then you start in the criticism that that's, that's the sort of stuff can get you crucified or something yeah, like that. Right, right. They're, they understand that what you're saying is that you're criticizing our system from some other system, which you call how would God's rule be like? And of course, in the first century, since Caesar was considered to be God, that's a dangerous redundancy. Mm. Caesar is divine. Caesar is the son of God, savior of the world. These are all his titles. Mm. And he sits on a throne in Rome, let us say. And you're talking about some other kind of a God. Imagine Pilate trying to understand kingdom of God. I, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't think you're a big threat, but eh, we're going to get rid of you. Mm. You're, you're subversive. So mm. we'd be safe. We'll get rid of you. So I see Jesus really speaking profoundly, as he claimed, of course, not just to his fellow Jews or today to those who are Christians or any group of Christians, but speaking to the world. And that's why I am a Christian, because I can see that vision of the world mm. being necessary for the future of our species from another wholly different point of view. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Um, can I ask you one more follow-up question uh, uh, kind of on this train of thought? Because okay. it is, it's just so helpful to have someone of your caliber uh, to, to ask questions that might be very simple for you. But for me, I don't, I, I don't know how to, what to do with them. You know, I, I think one of the hard parts for me sometimes 
can be that because I was really brought up in this system of almost like a dualism of like the, you know, save the spirit, not the body kind of approach. Um, you know, I, I, it sounds like through my, my own heritage, I hear you saying, okay, like, hey, this, this is more about like a reality here and now. And dare I even use the phrase social gospel, which in my tradition is like, whoa, 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 that's not the real gospel. You know, the real gospel is saving your soul and from not, you know, going to hell essentially. I mean, how, when, when you hear people say that, I'm sure you do at times, what is your response to that? Because I tend to agree more and more with what you're saying about like, the more I read scriptures, the more you see like, um, a, a, a desire for the kingdom of God, whatever you want to call it, to be a reality on earth that hopefully promotes human flourishing. But some people in my spaces uh, sometimes say, well, listen, that's nice. But if you feed the poor person and, it, and they don't get saved and burn in hell forever, what's really more important here? Does that make sense? Yeah. So what yeah. are some of your thoughts on that? Well, to be honest with you, it's the great deal we made with Constantine in the fourth century. We will talk about heaven. You talk about earth. We will talk about uh, the soul. You can talk about the body, if you will. Mm. Um, we will talk about charity, and you can talk about justice. Yes. Because we know that justice gets you crucified, but charity gets you canonized. So yeah. we, we make a deal. Yeah, We make a deal with the world. Now, I go back to the opening of the Old Testament, our Christian Bible, and that first account of creation there, which was put there, by the way, when the the Bible was being put together as the lens through which the whole thing as then I find that our species, male and female, is put in charge of the world to run it for God. That's quite clear. And the, the God is immediately the God of the Sabbath. So mm. we're back with, you know, we're back with justice for everyone because that's what Sabbath is about. So I see mm. that's our mandate. Now, I understand. I understand the deal we made with Constantine. And I, I honestly, I'm afraid if I was there as a theologian, I might be a Eusebius. I might figure this is the kingdom of God having dinner with Constantine, as he said. Mm -hmm. Surely this is the kingdom of God on earth. Yeah. I mean, the, the huge question of the fourth century is what do you do when the empire joins you? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And builds, right. You, builds you magnificent cathedrals. Yeah. And gives you everything you want as long as you make a certain deal with it. Hmm. So I understand that challenge. That's, that's honestly the problem I had in the book Render to Caesar. How, hmm. how do you do it? How do you not give in? Right. Isn't it your duty? Now you've been against the pagan Roman Empire, but now you have the Christian Roman Empire. <sighs> so the problem was paganism, not empire. Right. Ah, mm. now everything is gorgeous. Um, no, I mean, yeah, I can't make those distinctions. I understand how people make them. I understand careerism. I, I really do in politics and in religion, by the way. And I understand yeah. it. I, I had to make my own decisions about it you know, when I was many years ago. But yeah. one other thing, if I could say, for example. Please. Did Jesus go up to Jerusalem to get himself martyred? Let me let me keep it in you know in language that we could we could discuss. Is the evidence that when Jesus went up to Jerusalem that Passover, I would ask, did he go up every Passover 
Hmm. That what happened this time that never happened every any other time. I don't believe that day laborers from Galilee made it up every year, but that's beside the point. If he only went up this time, why? Did he go up to get himself martyred? Hmm. Now, people people could decide to do that, by the way. I'm not talking about any divine, anything. A person might well decide, okay, the only thing to do here is show the show the brutality of this system by getting hmm. myself martyred. It could. Hmm. Now, I watch what Jesus did. He goes up there. Every day he's in the temple, Mark's gospel, for example, he's protected by the crowd. Yeah, the authorities want to get him because they recognize exactly what's going on. And I don't find it necessary to demonize Caiaphas. I think he's doing exactly what he's doing as a collaborator with the Romans, kind of a quizzling, actually. He's trying to keep the peace and his own career. And this absolutely threatens the peace in the tinderbox atmosphere of Passover. Yeah. Every night he goes to Bethany, get out of the city. If I, I'm sorry, I, if someone's going to say if I was doing it, well, allow me for a second. Yeah, feel free. <laughs> going from the sublime to the ridiculous. If I was there, <laughs> if I was going up to Jerusalem, I wanted to take my message, whatever it is, to the center of Judaism during Passover when there's Jews from all over the world there. I understand doing that. During the day, I'm going to be protected by the crowd that's on my side. Yep. At night, I'm not staying in the city. <laughs> There's a full moon, but yeah, it's dark streets and people disappear. Yeah. No, I get out of the city every night to Bethany, well around to my friends at Bethany, safe during the day, safe at night. Jesus is doing everything not to get himself killed. Hmm. Because really, it was not hard to get yourself killed. At Passover, mm. the Pilate there, and we know of two riots, one in what was it, 4 BCE, another in the 50s, and thousands of people killed because, in, you know, in a compressed atmosphere of the temple, you're celebrating deliverance from Egypt when you can see soldiers on the Fortress Antonia looking down at you. Yeah, right. All it takes is somebody to shout out, why do we take this stuff? Yeah. And you have a riot, and it leaves soldiers out of it to stampede and kill people. Yeah. So I understand Pilate's policy was if anyone coughs too loud, <laughs> hang them up as a warning. Mm. So nobody from Galilee. So as I read that story, Jesus is doing everything to bring his message to Jerusalem. And I think that's what he was invited to do, by the way. And not to get himself killed. Yeah. So I don't see it. I, I mean, historically, I don't see it. You wouldn't have to, you really wouldn't have to leave Galilee to get yourself executed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Antipas yeah. did it, did it for John and you didn't take a week in Jerusalem to do it. So on the other hand, I see both sides. I see exactly why Pilate did it. I do understand that. And in one sense, from the Roman point of view, he was right. Hmm. He really was because somebody talking about the kingdom of God. You yep. must think, even though it's ridiculous, he knew that this guy thinks he's some kind of a king. Right. And we don't think that's funny. Mm. You know, if, if I wa walked around Washington tomorrow saying, I'm the president, I think the Secret Service would be pretty soon saying, now, what exactly do you mean by that? <laughs> right, you, right. You're the president. What about the one who is? Are you, is this a threat? Or are you just an idiot? Now, they might decide I'm an idiot. 
and that everything's fine. But it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous line. Yeah. If I wanted to make the statement, well, I let's see, I, I'm a holy person and I'm the true president. That's dangerous stuff. Yeah, right. So that's what I see Jesus doing. He, he's he's invited, I think, to come to Jerusalem. They might have, I, I, I don't know this, but maybe they said, get out of those hick <laughs> towns in Galilee, come up where it really counts, come to the capital. Right, right. Passover. Make your witness there where it counts. Hmm. And we protect you by day and night. You'll be all right. So I don't see Jesus going to be martyred. But on the other hand, I must insist on this. What he is going for is the sort of thing that gets you martyred, as he well knows, hmm. got John the Baptist killed, and is a witness to the world of what I think we have to do to survive as a species. Hmm. Um. Wow. I'll. I'm gonna have to re-listen to that and sit with that and think about that because that's um a, a very different paradigm from where, you know, how I was taught about so much of this. I want to move in while we have a few minutes left. I want to talk about Easter. You know, um, Easter is, it's a big deal in everywhere in the Christian tradition. It's not exclusive, oh, yeah. you know, to 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 white evangelical spaces. In fact, I would argue more and more. I am maybe more convinced that evangelicals don't really take it seriously enough in some ways, um, you know, um, and, and all of that. But I, I do think that, you know, and I'm again curious to hear your thoughts because you have studied this, you, you, you talk about this stuff all the time. And, um, we're talking about the challenges of Jesus. You know, the, the physical, a physical resurrection happening, uh, at least in my tradition was really what Easter was all about. It was that Jesus, you know, really established himself as, as God by conquering death physically. So we could look towards a future where all of us are raised to life again, uh, and, and able to be reconciled into, you know, some people call it heaven. I'm convinced now it's an, it's a new earth kind of idea, more NT right approach, whatever. Um, you know, so for you, you are a Christian. This is your life. You are fully committed to to this Christian thing. But you do have some might say some controversial takes, especially yeah. on the physical resurrection. So, what do you do with Easter for you, and what do you do with this physical resurrection idea that is pretty well established? I would say in in, in the majority of Christian thought, yeah. um, you know, regarding our current status. Okay, and let let me insist on one thing, Tim. I'm seeing this through a whole different lens. I, I can't pick and choose. So it's not like somebody who is seeing it with the consistency of, of, let me call it classical Christianity, dare I say, or traditional Christianity, but it's, it's not really cr traditional Christianity. I'm not, <laughs> it really is. It's, it's the last hundred years of Christianity, especially in this country, to be honest with you. Yeah, fair. That's a consistent view. Yeah. If you touch it, at all, it's going to tumble. Yes. But honestly, it's a house of cards. Hmm. I'm afraid. Um, what I see it is this. Let me put it bluntly. History belongs to God too. Hmm. And the ability to dismiss history or to dismiss even reason and invent this whole thing is what creates the problem. So let me go back to... to let me say again, for me, it's crucial. If, if anyone wants to understand me, and they don't have to understand me, unless they want to write about me. If you That's want a very fair point, me, Tom, to make. A very if fair somebody point. wants to say, I just ignore Crossing completely, absolutely <laughs> fair. 
But after all, I'm doing that to some people too. And <laughs> yeah. But if you want to understand me, because I think I do understand the uh, classical tradition, I, I do think I understand this logic. Uh, you have to begin with the fact that for me, there were two discrete modes of interpretation for Easter Sunday morning. Let me do it this way. Please let me imagine for the moment that on Easter Sunday morning, the, the tomb was found empty. I, I'm not convinced of that historically. I think Mark created it, but let me accept it for the moment. I've, I've done this in, in discussion with Tom Wright. Let me also accept, which I do think happened. I do think happened. There were visions of the exalted Jesus. I'm, I'm using a neutral term of the exalted Jesus. Now, they had two metaphors within which to interpret that, whether we like it or not. One of them was ascension, which was a cross-culturally accepted option within the Greco-Roman and Jewish world. It happened to Romulus, the founder of Rome. It happened to Moses, the founder of Judaism, let me put it. That would be the obvious one. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He is with God. Then you can draw whatever conclusions. Therefore, we should live as he told us. Therefore, 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 whatever. Now, I, I want to repeat this because we have forgotten it. Resurrection in the first century meant a metaphor that was only valid for Pharisaic Judaism, not for Judaism as a whole, and not for the rest of the world at all. <laughs> mm. you, you may remember what happened to Paul in Luke's account of Athens, <laughs> they just thought it was too silly to even bother with him. They didn't even persecute him. <laughs> they just laughed at him. Mm. Now, the Pharisaic belief was, and it was only about 150 years old, that at the end of time, there would be a great big justification of the human race when every single person who'd ever lived would come back alive in the body, because they lived in the body, yes. to be judged by God, and then to go off to heaven or hell. Yes. So in other words, the claim was, despite all the problems we see with the world where the good get this and the bad get that, at the end of time, it would be all cleaned up. Hmm. That's what the resurrection meant. Now, Paul, as a messianic Pharisee, a messianic Pharisee, therefore a Jew, of course, said, but that has begun with Jesus because he knew you couldn't have a resurrection. This is 1 Corinthians 15, of course. You couldn't have a single resurrection. It, did, it doesn't happen. Resurrection is a universal phenomenon. Hmm. Uni so the only way it could happen to Jesus is Paul suddenly, ah, it's the beginning of the general resurrection. So Jesus is the first fruits. So resurrection is not an end time product, but an in time process. Mm. Oops, it's going on now. Now, all of a sudden, <laughs> mm. then we're living, Paul, you mean, you mean us Christians are supposed to be kind of living resurrected lives? Yeah, says Paul, you got it. <laughs> I can imagine the Corinthians saying, you gotta be kidding. But that's the only thing that makes sense. He says resurrection is not an end time phenomenon, but an end time. But that means Paul, that every day and in every way, every single person who's ever lived is being judged, let's just say by God, let me say, and you mean then that, that heaven and hell like are going on right now? 
Granted, they're going to have a consummation in the future, and you, Paul, think it'll be soon, and you were wrong on that, of course, right. by 2,000 years. But I don't think the time is important because the message is not about the time. But Paul's radical vision is that of a messianic Pharisee. He hasn't given up being a Pharisee. But he's, he says it started with Christ. So the great justification of the world is ongoing right now, and every human being who's ever lived is being judged by what they're doing. Now, when I read 1 Corinthians 15, I can read that as a pure evolutionary statement hmm. because I can see it. Every one of us who's ever lived, including myself, in our own tiny little way has participated in the problem we have now of accelerated global warming. Hmm. And none of us think of ourselves as sinners doing it. Right. And what we've done with other species. So I see what we've done to the world. Resurrection is a challenge to evolution, to accept what we're doing. I think what we have done actually, in the West especially, is simply substitute. We've talked resurrection, but imagined ascension. Mm. Look at all the images. Jesus is above the tomb, off he's going. Where is he going? He's going up. But resurrection shows them taking Adam and Eve, kicking and screaming almost, out of their tombs. Where? Back to life itself. Mm. So to go back to what I said before, yeah. I see especially the Eastern challenge as exactly what Paul would say. Yep, that's what we're talking about. It's already begun. That's why Jesus carries the cross in all of these little scenes, even though it's awkward when he has, when he needs his two hands to, to, to grab Adam and Eve and he needs an angel to hold the cross for him. Right, right. That's why you see the wounds. That's why he's, the gates of Hades are in you know, cruciform shape. Paul would feel absolutely at home with Eastern resurrection. And he would not feel at home, I think, with our Easter Sunday when Jesus is taking off out of the tomb. Hmm. So hmm. if I were to imagine, and I, I, I will imagine this in, in the discussion with Tripp, I would find that the future of Easter should be a combination of both of those. We should hold on to both of those. Because we separated in the second millennium when yeah. East went, went away from the West and the West. But we think the West is the only way of imagining it. So that's where I am on it. That's why I see it as a absolute challenge right now, here and now, to everything we're seeing on the news. Yeah. And I, I do understand that, that our violence against one another is what the Bible speaks against about all the time. And mm. it's right. Yeah. But now, we, if you look at the evening news, we have the danger of a third world war yeah. in one part of the world and the danger of <laughs> the ice caps <laughs> lapping at the, the, <laughs> the shores of Miami and New York on the other. We've got two ways of, of, of destroying the human race yeah. and maybe our world. And one, one is caught up with the other one. Before we like solved one, we found the other coming after us. Mm. Now, if you feel, if somebody feels, well, you know, I don't really care because the world's coming to an end and or I'm going off to 
heaven. So this is only my temporary dwelling, you know, like, like you're stuck in a bad motel or something, but you're going home and you don't care. Right. Um, I have nothing to say to that person. I really, I, I, I can't, but I would go back to my statement to understand me. You have to understand that I see the world as the, as the Titanic mm. and me as its iceberg. Mm. So th that's the way I see it. So I don't, I don't see <laughs> the yeah. escape. Wow. I mean, you know, Dom, this is, yeah, it's, it's incredibly helpful. You know, people like yourself who come onto the podcast and, and are able just to express different ways of thinking about these things. I think for a lot of us, it, it is helpful. It's thought provoking. And it also is, is a little, it, it's a little, it, it's kind of reinforcing because a lot of us, you know, listen, I, I grew up in, a, in, in an environment that pretty much had that, that perspective of, Hey, you know, don't worry. It's all going to burn. And, uh, one day when that happens, we're going to float away, uh, to some, you know, magical dreamlike, you know, scape of floating on clouds with, with, with streets paved of gold. And for some people, they were taught that, you know, um, if you weren't a real Christian, you would get left behind and yeah. the whole world would burn and you would suffer because it turns out you were a phony, which gave people a lot of, uh, anxiety and having someone come along and kind of say things bluntly that are like, Hey, you know, I don't have much to say to that person. Um, but there are other ways of thinking about this that might actually address the problems here and now. I really think is, is, is healing for a lot of people in our community who are, some are very fresh, uh, from, from that space and still incredibly, um, dealing with their own trauma from, from, from that brain formation of what that does. And so I appreciate that, you know, I appreciate you sharing everything that you've shared in this, being able to help people, again, just think about alternate perspectives that hopefully are are more bent towards justice and human flourishing um, and love of God by loving our neighbor, you know, and having those things uh, intertwine instead of so oftentimes at odds with each other. My tradition tends to prioritize a very literal reading of the Bible, no matter who it harms. And I think a lot of us go, wait, this doesn't make any sense. If God created all humans, if we're all made in the image of God, even that, even by that logic, this whole thing doesn't really track that way. So I, I appreciate you, you know, sharing everything that you have shared with us because it's just, it's helpful to know that we're not alone in struggling through these things. And frankly, there are people like yourself whose shoulders, you know, we, we have to stand on and realize how much work people like yourself have done to really unpack very complicated theology and world history and, and, and context and culture to try and get a better grasp of the full breadth of the Christian tradition that we're trying to find our way in. Yeah. And I, I honestly hope it's, I hope it's helpful and hopeful because I really do not want to spend my life fighting with people. And also part of it, honestly, part of it is I grew up in Ireland. And if we had any sort of fundamentalism, it would be papal fundamentalism. But in Ireland, we had the Celtic tradition because we were outside the Roman Empire. So we were never properly Romanized. We really weren't. We weren't Romanized by the empire. So we weren't really properly Romanized <laughs> by Roman Catholicism. Yeah. So in one sense, that was way over there. I had to come to this country. I came here when I was, uh, what, 17. I, in this country, I had to learn, and it took me a long time to learn what fundamentalism was. I mean, really, even working in the Jesus seminar, I was much more attuned to metaphor and things like that. And the literalism, I, I had to understand, okay, now there are people 
for whom this must be taken literally. I thought, well, you could take it literally if you wanted to, but you could also take it metaphorically. And so I kind of distinguish literalism from fundamentalism. I, literalism, I could talk to somebody, you take it literally. Well, I, I had lots of people who took parts of Irish history literally that I thought were all apologetics and made up. Mm. You know, we, yeah. we were all so sainted, marvelous, and British were all so awful. You know, I, I kind of knew that stuff. Yeah. A fundamentalist for me would be a literalist who says, if you don't take this literally, you're not a Christian. Yes. That's harder for me to speak with that person because I know if that person got power, I know it from Roman Catholicism, when fundamentalists and literalists had power, they simply burned you at the stake and said, don't take it personally. <laughs> you know, you're, you're evil and this is what we do with evil. Don't, don't take it right. personally. So right. the danger, the real danger of fundamentalism, any fundamentalism, I'm not just talking about Christian, is that basically I have the truth, you are a lie, and what we do with liars, if we have the power, is we either destroy them commercially one way or the other, yeah. or we burn them alive. I'm sorry. So yes. literalism must be distinguished from fundamentalism. That That is really helpful because I still in my own journey would affirm a physical resurrection, like Apostles' Creed stuff. I would still say, yeah, like I, I affirm that stuff, you know, but I also am recognizing more and more that you know, I understand why this stuff could be debated, and I understand that maybe there are different ways of seeing this. But I, I just want to emphasize for you, Dom, that I can't agree with you anymore on that part about, about about fundamentalism. And that is why, and for the folks out there listening, this is why we do follow and critique Christian nationalism so seriously, because it is comprised of militant fundamentalists who truly yeah. believe that they have a special and unique calling by God to rule over everyone else in America. And I don't have to tell you this. Dom can tell you better than I can. We've been in those situations before in history, and it always ends bad. It always ends with death. It ends with, like you said, you're burned at the stake, but don't take it personally. You're just, you're demonic. And that's why when I hear the language of, of, of oh, those people are Satan or those people are demonic, it gets me very concerned because that puts us on a path of dehumanization, which always leads yeah. to violence towards other people. And yeah. so I just want to yeah. I want to emphasize that point with you, Dom, that I completely agree. And that frankly, a lot of the people who who were born in those fundamentalist spaces, not all, but a lot, are walking away. We were saying, you know what? I'm committed to Jesus more than ever because you yeah. fundamentalists radicalized me. And because of that, I have yeah. to leave to find better paths. I, I can't stay here anymore. So I maybe, maybe, we, maybe we can kind of end on that note of hope of like, don't worry. The good news is that a lot of us are kind of, you know, waking up and saying, wait a second, something does not pass the smell test. And I am devoted. I have allegiance to Jesus. Therefore, I must leave this basement and find other paths to flourish in. Yes. That, that's what's hopeful. That's what's helpful. Yeah, I love that. Anytime you would ever want me to be on your podcast, I would be happy to do it. Oh, gosh, I'm honored, Dom. I'm honored. Well, let me ask you this. When, when your, your classes, you're doing a couple classes with TRIP for yeah. Easter. What, 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 are the, what are those dates? Um, well, what we're doing, we did four for Christmas. It's called the Christmas Stories. That's basically Matthew and, and Luke 1 and 2. And we did them with the four four weeks of, of Advent. Then people, when we said we were going to do it for for Easter, they said, well, well, don't do it during Easter because we just get to the <laughs> in the end, right, at, at Easter. 
do the four of them and put them up on Ash Wednesday. So what's going to happen is all four of them are prepared. Uh, we did them, Trip and I did them together, you know, just the two of us. They're all prepared. They will go up on Ash Wednesday and the Tuesday before, which is what, next Tuesday, I think it is? Next Tuesday, Tuesday before Ash Wednesday, we're going to do a kind of a teaser on the execution of Jesus. Mm. Two o'clock on, on Trip Fuller. It'll be a kind of a preparation, but then the four that we're going to do will be available for anyone. Right. For a year. So groups that, were, that would want to do it, church groups especially that would want to do it, will have it immediately and can do it whenever they want. Right. So that was what we're doing. And what we will do, especially, is work with those two, uh, two traditions. And especially when I say a metaphor, I, I want to insist it's a metaphor about the body. It's, you know, it's not a metaphor about the soul. That's platonic. Hmm. Because when, when we're talking about every person who's ever lived, <laughs> then we're, we're not talking about souls. <laughs> right. Thoughts. We're really talking about, you know, what we did with our hands and our feet. Right. So, the physical resurrection for me is terribly important, but it is a metaphor of the physical resurrection. Mm -hmm. Like if you're reading Plato, he has a metaphor about the spirit, you know, where it will go. But it's a metaphor about the spirit. Yeah. I'm talking about the human being, body and soul inextricably linked together. Mm -hmm. Consciousness. Mm -hmm. so, I love that. That's but great. I, I would hope if 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 people who would watch your podcast would have would be able to watch these four because it's so it's so simple. You just register for it and then you do it whenever you want. I think well, I'll make sure that I put a link in the show notes for folks. And we're gonna try and release this before those things go live so folks can sign up and get the email and everything like that. We I try whenever Trip gets me a guest like yourself or he's doing a class with someone and we talk about it, I try and have the episode out before it all goes down so folks can register and get everything. So I'll make sure to get that those details from Trip and put those in our show notes so our community can just click on the link and be all ready to rock and roll, which which, which would be great. Um, one one more question I had for you actually. I I never really asked an author this before, but you're such a prolific writer. For folks who who maybe want to get more acquainted with your work, what do you think is a good introduction book to you and the work that you do for our community based on what you know about us? Okay. Well, you know, in one sense, you could begin with the greatest prayer. Okay. Okay. I mean, but the obvious one might be one of the Jesus books, but this is the greatest prayer. It's the claim I'm making about the, the Our Father. Mm. Because I, I think it's a prayer on, from the heart of Christianity on the lips, from the heart of Judaism on the lips of Christianity, but addressed to the whole world. <laughs> and I was one, one time in a, in a federal case defending that, that it was all right to use that because it was not a Christian prayer. And, <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah, it was, it was in um, Delaware, whether that could be used to open, a, you know, a, a public, uh, meeting of the council. Right. Was it a Christian prayer? I said, well, show me what's in there that is Christian. They said it was the Lord's prayer. I said, yeah, but that ain't in there. <laughs> right, <laughs> but, right, right. Anyway, so maybe as a way of, of getting a feel for the whole. Right. I would almost say that one, because it introduces Jesus, introduces the way I see it, and it does it in an atmosphere of, of prayer that might not be alienating for people. 
I love it. Dom, uh, again, an honor and privilege to have you make time to talk to us in our community. Thank you so much for all that you have done and contributed to the Christian tradition in, in our current you know moment and context. I'll make sure to put a link to, to where folks can find that book and others. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Anytime. Thank you, Tim. Absolutely. When you're struggling with your mental health, the world can seem pretty heavy, like no one understands what you're feeling or you're not sure how to ask for help. But here's the real truth. You're never in this alone. 988 Lifeline's trained crisis counselors are available 24-7 to offer the help and support you need to make it through. No judgment, no stigma, just someone to listen. Text or call 988-SUICIDE-IN-CRISIS-LIFELINE, day or night, 988. Hope has a new number.